you're listening to Death of the Reader. Flex and Herds here with your Murder Mystery World Tour, and we are here with our final episode discussing Masako Togawa's The Master Key. Mm, the Master Key. And Herds, yeah. we are just talking the last chapter, as well as, of course, just the broader story uh, in today's episode, because I broke it up in a little bit of a weird way. Yeah, you put a lot in the middle chapter, in the middle yeah. section. Um, there, there is an epilogue as well, but the epilogue is like one scene, and it's the silliest scene in this entire novel, and we'll, I suppose we'll get to that. Oh my yeah. goodness. We'll definitely have to kind of push on that more in the mystery section, yeah, that's yeah, definitely yeah. where that kind of leans. But the thing I wanted to talk about here was just overall how well this book sticks the landing for how mm. out of the box it was doing things at the time. Yeah, like this is a, a murder mystery that, as I said last week, is entirely backwards. We're watching a crime that is already being solved and we're learning about it kind of post-mortem, post mm-hmm. which in a sense kind of kind of works because when we when we do a murder mystery, we don't, well, most murder mysteries don't have us, you know, see the crime itself. We're always coming in at the crime scene after the crime has taken place. Yeah. We're figuring out the characters. We're learning, you know, what happened in the past. Um, but this, this murder mystery uh, doesn't, focus on actually solving the crime in a sense. Yeah. It, it's more the process of revealing the crime uh, after, you know, all is said and done. It's it's very much one of those things that has become a trope in police procedurals. Yeah. There's a lot, obviously, that crime fiction has lent to police procedurals because they're ostensibly the same genre, but television police procedurals have a very different approach to how they engage their narrative where mm. basically it's always framed like a mystery, but you basically will have the person who shows up who isn't the main cast first is the culprit, and you yeah, just have to figure out who it was. Yeah. And so you get often these twists and tricks like what the master key does, where we flip the story on its head, and we already know that the crime is solved. It's just a matter of kind of reverse engineering yeah. the audience to be at the same place mm-hmm. as the rest of the yeah. cast. It's how do we insert ourselves into the end of the tale? How do we insert the audience into the place where the, the police you know, already are, that sort of thing. Yeah, and this very much is a book that just feels like it's straight written for television, mm. even though, you know, this was, I think, first yeah. first translated in 85, but the original text was like 1962 or something. There's nothing in this novel that, that couldn't be adapted to the modern day. I mean, I even made a clip about it last week. You could very easily replace the master key with like a pass card and the apartment block with a train or a hotel, a more modern hotel. Yeah. A- any space where you're kind of stuck together with a group of people. An, an island, like a, a mansion on an island, for example. That's a crazy you suggestion. You could do something crazy like that. You know, whatever you want, really. Whatever you want. It's 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 <laughs> adaptable to the nines, yeah. you know? I think one of the things that I did want to complain about, though, in terms of how this story rounds itself sure. out, is that the the final uh, story about Miss Tojo, who mm. was the culprit of all of these things. Well, it's not, it's barely a story, right? Yeah. Like, it's a it's a... Retelling. We're even given uh, this final chapter is called Miss Tojo's Chronicle, mm. and explicitly it is Tojo writing down her thoughts about what has happened over the last seven chapters. And the thing that's really weird about it is that in broad strokes, I think it totally makes sense that we have this character who's, you know, kind of feeling this guilt for all of this weird stuff they've been doing, getting all of the people that they're meant to be looking after as a receptionist involved in this weird cult to yes. get her brother sorted and all of that sort of stuff. <laughs> yep. It adds flavor though, it, you gotta say. It's really fun. That's yeah. the thing. It's, it's a big mess, but it's really fun. But I think the th- weird thing with this end chapter is that because the story has kind of subverted 
the normal mystery tropes by dragging this mystery out across seven chapters. And it's all a series of stories that point at one underlying event yep. that she has the extra copy of the master key as you correctly. Yay. Grew me. Because it has that layout. It means that when we get to the end, this is just a confession scene that sets up and mm. resolves itself in one go. It feels like, you know, in most murder mysteries, there is the confession scene, and then there's a little bit more where the detective like decides what to do with the victim, or yeah. we have the victim, or sorry, with the murderer, or we have the murderer taken away, and they get one less. I'll get you, detective. You know, there's something to kind of tie things up. The audience is left with the feeling of you know everything is resolved now. I understand the story, yeah. but what do we actually physically do to resolve everything that's going on? I don't actually necessarily agree that's the problem. You I don't? think I, I think that this being left open-ended mm-hmm. is totally fine. Uh-huh. It's just that the the foreshadowing of who and what Miss Tojo was doing was so obfuscated that it doesn't mm. feel like a payoff. Mm. It feels like an explanation. I suppose so. And that's a, that's a fine line to walk in a mystery, but I think that for how strong the idea of the receptionist running around and spying on everyone in the hotel was, you know, even though we got the characterization of Haru Santo as this mysterious ghostly woman who tra- travels person. and no one knows anything about, mm-hmm. when we get to the end and it's like, ah, oh, it was me all along, Austin. It feels a bit flat. It does. Uh, it, yeah, I, I totally agree with you there. I think that, she doesn't physically do a, a lot. Mm. I don't know. Most of what we see is her acting as a receptionist, which is interesting and it gives clues. But I felt as though her like secret, you know, architect persona was was just a bit too closely guarded, a bit too hidden yeah. in the story. I would have liked to have seen more of her. I actually don't. I, I, I again, I actually I understand your criticism, but I don't I agree with it because I think uh-huh. what it's actually missing is not moments to show what she's doing, but why mm. she's doing it. Sure. Because that's the really fun thing about mystery characterization is mm. that whenever you find out who the villain is, you can go back and it recontextualizes sure. everything they've said. Nothing that Miss Tojo says is recontextualized on a personal level. It's all strategic. Yeah, I think that this novel could have used a little bit more fleshing out of of Tojo as a character, at least in the Mm. the parts where she's not the point of view character. Yeah. Um, Obviously, part two is kind of excellent in the way that she's, you know, she takes this perspective of of saying, you know, all the people in this building, they feel like some secret is about to be unearthed. But really, it's just Tojo and like, and Kimura. <laughs> like, she's projecting really hard in that yeah. moment. Uh, and I, I really enjoyed rereading part two after finishing the book. Totally. I think that might be my favorite chapter. Yeah, actually. that's that's also why um, I stopped there because that's where the like impact kind of rounds out yeah, to me. Yeah. And I think also, despite these complaints about there not being recharacterization as you mm-hmm. reread through, mm-hmm. even though Miss Tojo is a bit flat, everyone else I was, is so fleshed yeah, out on I was going to say, I think that's part of why Miss Tojo falls flat is because everybody else is so fantastic. All of these characters have such strong characterization from the moment that were introduced to them. And it's usually through their hobbies, which mm. I thought was really interesting. Like not hobbies necessarily, but like these activities that they do to keep themselves afloat or to keep themselves occupied. The letter writing, the uh, collecting of milk bottles, like just little things uh, that, that the author can use to contextualize them in the real world and make them feel like real people. Yeah, we, we learn a lot through them through their habits. And yeah, that's the exactly. way that the narrative is told. Yeah. It just it, ties it feels, together so It nicely. feels like an ecosystem mm, totally. that is being manipulated, of course, by Tojo. And that's why the mystery works so well. Um, that said, I want to say, I, when I was at the end of this novel, I, I felt really satisfied, I think, at the end of it. I really enjoyed, particularly the epilogue mm. and the way that it almost jokingly ties things together. Because- 
as Miss Tojo says, uh, to uncover the true depths of the mystery of this story, that way lies madness. Uh-huh. Mm. And I think that's ultimately the thing to take away from this novel. <laughs> madness? Is that it, absolutely. Okay. Is that it's it it's just bizarre in terms of how it approaches the mystery conventions, and despite everything weird that it does, it still fits in. And I think if we look back at all of the other Japanese murder mystery stories that we've covered, that's the thing that they've done that Western murder mysteries haven't, mm. by and large. They've all been trying to push the boundaries in some way or another, whereas a lot of the English writers that we've been covering have tried to use those boundaries and say. fill them out to their fullest. Yeah. Re- reinvent tropes that we're already familiar with rather than, rather than trying to kind of strike out yeah. and change the game, so to speak. And I think that that's one of the most satisfying things about this book is you get to the end and you appreciate that you've just had a very unique experience. I think that at the end of the day, the authors that stand out the most to, to me, and I, I hope to you too, Flex, are those that draw upon their personal experiences and their personal drives to really create something that's never been never been seen before you know like we talked all the way back in the in the first year about van dyne and how Mm -hmm. his very strong convictions uh against murder mystery were what produced you know his style of 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 mystery totally you know his style of storytelling and in this case uh it's this very personal very clear understanding of you know uh, what it's like for a group of women to live together yeah and it's in no way to say that like the quote-unquote, English approach that I've described is worse than what the Japanese are doing. It just means that we get such different results from the same genre, and that's really exciting. Yeah, we just want to see something new and unique, and that's really really all you can ask for. Exactly. You're listening to Death of the Reader. We are discussing the last chapter of Masako Togawa's The Master Key. We'll be back with more of that in just a second. You're listening to 2SER 107.3. You're listening to Death of the Reader. Flex and Herds here for your murder mystery world tour. Or just flex because it's the dark of the night and I'm joined by Caroline Crampton, writer and podcaster who is the mind behind the amazing She Done It podcast, to which I have been losing all of my time. Caroline, welcome to the show. It's so good to have you. Thank you very much for having me. The thing I was so excited to talk about with She Done It is, first of all, just because we're all mystery lovers and we love sharing uh, the stories and puzzles and authors that we get along best with. So it's fantastic to have another show to share with our audience to get along with. Uh, but also because you have such a different approach to us. You know, sometimes I guess I can be a bit t- territorial. Someone else talking about mystery novels? My goodness. Outrageous. I thought I was the one for that. But uh, I absolutely love your format where uh, you have done such extensive research and such a neatly packaged, concise and informative view of particular topics topics about murder mystery rather than the uh, Sherlock and Watson debating in a room approach that we have here on Death of the Reader. So what inspired you to get started with the She Done It podcast? So a few different things, one being a great fan, a lifelong fan of of these books, particularly, particularly but not limited to British murder mysteries from sort of the 20s, 30s and 40s. So yeah, just, you know, enjoying them and as you say wanting to share them with other people and then there was also a call it technical or production side of it which is that I was making podcasts as my job at a magazine in London and I wanted to try some different things you know I wanted to try some ideas and a format that wasn't you know currently in demand from my employer yeah and the great thing about podcasts is that you can as long as you've got the time you can do it very cheaply or for almost nothing uh, so there was that aspect of it too, wanting to wanting to just try out my skills. And then there was also just the 
in the back of my mind, sort of the idea that there were people who wanted to listen to this. You know, like you, I'm always wanting more podcasts in my area of expertise. And I felt like although there were some sort of discussion podcasts, there wasn't really anything that was doing what I... it sounds pretentious, but I kind of think of mine as like, like almost like little essays. Because yeah. you say, like I do research, I interview sources, and then I try and put it together into something concise that you can consume quickly. And I, there wasn't really anything doing that. So I wanted to try and do it. It's always been such a consistent and well-produced show. And I absolutely love all of the different questions about the genre that you uh, ask as you go through. Um, you know, the second most recent episode, as we record this being the first who done it, which was a fantastic dive into the uh, the question of where the genre really began. And there's so many interesting questions that I guess often get looked over when you're just dealing with the texts themselves. Yes. I mean, I've been doing the show now since I think the first episode was end of October 2018. So two and a half years, roughly. And sometimes when people encounter it more recently, you know, they like it, but they ask me, like, how long can you keep doing this? Yeah. How many more topics or questions (laughs) are there? And so far, I have to say, the more I do, the more I find. Yeah, totally. It's like, I guess, the Dunning-Kruger effect thing where the more you know, the more you realize you don't know. Yeah. I suppose the other thing talking about Honkaku Mysteries that's so exciting is, as you say, you know, being a Western reader, we're so often exposed to the Agatha Christie's and the Detection Club and that sort of field of murder mystery. What was the most exciting thing for you delving into Japanese mysteries that you didn't expect to find? I think it was the discussion and the portrayal of what Japan was actually like at that time. I think, you know, the shortcomings of the British history curriculum in schools is <laughs> well known. And it certainly did not include, you know, what life was like in rural Japan in the 1940s. Having read them and then talking to On, who, you know, grew up in Japan before moving to America as an adult, and just getting his perspective on it as well, that felt very very, very informative as well to sort of hear how the generations after that sort of initial reading public in the 50s felt about it Mm. and, you know, sort of Japan's interaction with its own history. So yeah, that that felt like something that you couldn't maybe necessarily even get from somewhere else. Yeah. I mean, we've been so spoiled with recent translations, the Pushkin Vertigo series, um, Keigo Higashino's work, the translations have been absolutely fantastic. And why is it you think that people should uh, these days be looking into the field of murder mystery that we love so much and not only within, you know, the scope of the English authors, but delving over into other regions? What is there still for people in crime fiction a genre and mystery fiction especially a genre where it feels like all of these questions have already been posed and answered they definitely have i think it i mean i'm not definitely going to try and do this myself anytime soon but (laughs) i i don't i think it would be very hard to write a new and completely original puzzle mystery but then i think it was probably always quite hard to do that i'm just thinking about writers coming at it sort of in the early 30s after a full decade of the the sort of puzzle fever in the UK. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're thinking about someone like Dorothy L. Sayers, say, coming uh, to write her her first mystery novel, turns out she had quite a lot to say. Yeah. And I th- I think that the although originality is nice and fun, I don't think it's crucial. I think that quality of writing ultimately matters sometimes a lot more than originality. And I do think that something interesting that's sort of happening more in the last couple of decades is people taking the mechanics of the puzzle plot sort of out of 
isolation and putting it into a world that contains people of more social classes and more backgrounds and that yeah. kind of thing. A, l- a little bit of what the Shin Honkaku field was mm. kind of trying to do, but put into a, an even newer spin than that. Yes, definitely. Sort of uh, giving it some of today's uh, progressive values or whatever, and today's today's ideas, but keeping some of the same framework. And I, I find that really interesting. So I think as long as that's going on, I think there's there's always going to be more to learn um, from murder mysteries. Yeah, I mean, I think just from the stuff we've covered on the show, like Raymond Chandler reused No, no Crime in the Mountains plot for Lady in the Lake. Uh, Edegawa Rampo used the same puzzle device twice in one mm-hmm. one book after another in a row that was really exciting <laughs> because we got, one of them was apparently his own least favorite story and he's like, oh, but the trick was too good. I have to use it again in something <laughs> I like more. And that was really entertaining to see that personal process. And I guess it kind of gives you the same spirit of like independent creators where you get to see them stumble along the way uh, and, and learn from their mistakes, which is always so charming. Absolutely. And I really like that that sense of um, seeing the working, see, sort of seeing things develop as they go. And that's one of the things I really like about uh, sort of focusing in on the period roughly to 1920 to 40 is that I do think you can see the workings. And that's why one of my absolute favourite novels from that period is one of the most uneven, which is um, The Floating Admiral, <laughs> which was the, um, yep. the collective book written by the members mm-hmm. of the Detection Club where they wrote it round robin style you also had to write a little appendix as to what mm-hmm. you would make the solution if you were <laughs> writing the rest of it. And so my favourite part to read is actually the bit at the end of the book. Hands where down, they each, hands down. Yeah, they each explain what would have happened if they'd been in sole control of the story. And I think, I have to double check this, but I think it's Clements Dane who, in her, her little appendix is very short. She was maybe chapter seven or eight or something like that. And she basically just says, I got very confused. I didn't really <laughs> yeah. know what was happening. So I just wrote something that I thought was fun. Sorry. <laughs> I love that book and I love the the appendixes be- precisely because you can sort of see the personalities at work. You can see how they're struggling with these concepts. And uh, I still think it's extraordinary that, um, you know, Anthony Barclay just had to wrap the whole thing up in a bow. I know. It's about a third the length of the entire rest of the book just because of the mess he had to clean up. But I think you're totally right. It captures the spirit of why a genre where the questions have all been asked and answered can still be so good after all these years. And that's part of why we originally featured it on the show, even if it did just boil my blood at points. (laughs) Yeah, it's not a a good sort of end-to-end read in that (laughs) sense. You know, I, I definitely wouldn't recommend it, say, to someone who's never read a uh, who done it before because yeah it's it's objectively not good but <laughs> as as a kind of a glimpse inside the engine as it were i think it's it is very well worth the time oh man that is fantastic and i, I suppose that'll be where we uh, wrap up if you want to check out the she done it podcast and i would absolutely recommend you do because more mystery is good mystery uh we'll have links up on the podcast to she done it and uh i <laughs> I'm so glad that we managed to find you because, you know, it's little islands of murder mystery out in the sea of the internet. And uh, I'm glad that we had a boat between us to bridge and discuss all of this wonderful mystery. Carolyn, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you very much for having me. It's been, it's been delightful. And same, I feel slightly like I failed that you couldn't find me before, but I'm <laughs> glad you have now.
Oh man, it's it's just one of those things. It takes time, but we all get there in the end, and we'll all be on our little <laughs> mystery Titanic ship as we sink to the bottom mm. of the ocean with the genre. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Alrighty, you are listening to Death of the Reader. We are discussing Masako Togawa's The Master Key, and we'll be back with more of that in just a second. You're listening to Death of the Reader. Flex and Herds here. This is your murder mystery world tour. Each and every week we take you around all of the best in murder mystery fiction, the grisly world of the locked room. But Herds, mm. here in chapter eight of Masako Togawa's The Master Key, we have no locked room. I was going to say, the world of the locked room? We have no grisly <laughs> murder mystery. Uh-huh. It's just, you know, a woman gets pushed off a building oh in the goodness. last chapter with absolutely no setup. Can we... That's ridiculous. I, I don't think we got to properly talk about this last week because when, when I was looking at that scene, you know, we hear from, from Kimura that uh, Yatsube, she goes up to the roof and we hear the sound of a violin and then suddenly Yatsube is on, on the bottom of the ground. She's yep. dead. She's fallen off the fifth floor. Um, and I thought, you know, she didn't take her violin up. Therefore, presumably the violin music is coming from that tape recorder that we've had set up. But yes. I, for the life of me, was like, does that mean that the cults Pushed her off? Like, why? To get the violin back? That doesn't make any sense. Like, what? what is happening here? Why does this murder even need to take place in the 11th yeah. hour? What is the point? And beyond all that, when it happens before the beginning of the story, yeah. why does the beginning of the story not mention it when it mentions, uh, like, four other crimes well, in one go? Can I say, I have a very specific bone to pick with the mystery here, because I was paying so much attention in that first part, and that we're given three specific events that are important. You know, six months ago, the cult showed up. Three months ago, the plans for the building began. And two months ago, the master key went missing. But the master key is always going missing. And the cult has been around, like, it, it is a long period of time that's around for. Uh-huh. And, the, and, and, and the construction work doesn't really matter in the end anyway. Like, <laughs> yeah, the, the construction anyway. I don't have a big problem with because it's just this is when the story finishes. Like Bizarre. that's that's our end. That's point. fine. That's but a- like it doesn't matter that they were there three months ago. Not that doesn't like that detail doesn't matter. I don't know. I, it just felt very bizarre to me that she was like, these are the things that I think are important <laughs> to think about right now. As my plan that I've been going on for for six months comes to fruition. Yeah. And like her, most of what she's thinking about doesn't even matter. You know, the like concrete details that she puts forward. Yeah. Because when you um, look at both Knox and Van Dyne's yeah. rules for murder mystery fiction, all of them focus on putting your mystery at the beginning of the story. The yeah. culprit is someone that we run into at the beginning of the story. Mm-hmm. We should have a body in a murder mystery. 300 pages aren't worth it if there isn't a body at the beginning. And whilst we sort of have those things, yeah. we don't have them in the same spirit that no. makes those rules work. I think that's fine, though. Like I, I enjoy the way that this story kind of remixes the ideas of, you know, we're, we're finding... A criminal. Yeah. Uh, Miss Tojo is the criminal, quote unquote, in, in that they're like abusing their power as a receptionist to manipulate people. Um, that's where the puzzle is, the mystery. But she's not a killer until the very last moment of the novel. Like I, I always feel like that was thrown in just to kind of satisfy the murder mystery like side of things. Like I I just it yeah. does, I can't comprehend it. It's the, it's very bizarre. The strangest thing is just that it isn't mentioned at the beginning. Because no, if it was mentioned at the beginning, it would feel deliberate. Yeah. But even though this book, as I as far as I know, was released as one comprehensive piece, yeah. it feels tacked on. And mm. like if you're releasing it as one book, why is it why is it why not, is it not mentioned? Like, what's going on well, here? Like, all you'd have to do is say, well, you see, one month ago or one week ago or whatever. 
poor Miss Yatabe had that incident with the rooftop. Like the novel uses the term incident in order to obfuscate clues numerous times. We don't even get a proper explanation for the child in the suitcase, which no. is bizarre to me. Um, the mystery is, of course, that the child in the suitcase isn't George. It is the physically deformed child of Miss Ueda and the, the man who was hit with a truck at the yeah, start of the story. Yeah, and they just didn't have the capacity and, to raise it. And yeah. this was the weird, twisted thing they chose to do instead of yeah. looking after the child. Yeah, and that, that's, gross. that's the big twist. And Miss Tojo, you know, says, I don't really want to talk about that anymore. I guess, I guess that I'll just have to ponder what happened to George and not think about that at all. Like it's a, it's a big important detail to the plot that the child is actually the malformed, you know, son or whatever of, of the person who committed suicide of the villain of the story. Like surely this is an important detail that should be at least a little bit explored through the story. And I mean, there, there's a huge theme, you know, between all the characters about motherhood and responsibility. And like, it's clearly an important theme to the story, but I feel like it kind of drops the ball at the end there. Was saying, ah, yes, the evil character who we've, you know, been setting up for the entire novel is having killed this person. You know, they had a child, and it's very tragic that they killed them because they they couldn't raise them because they were deformed. And we just won't think about it anymore. Let's just move on and get to our goofy major craft ending. Yeah, it, that's more it, fun. It feels very similar to like. I guess, classical tragedies. I suppose. Where we have this big narrative arc setting them up as a villain, but it's all about how everything went wrong and there was kind of nothing yeah. this person could do to escape their circumstances. That that said, I think that Miss Ueda did not get hardly any ca actual characterization. <laughs> Most of what we're told about the situation is through secondhand sources as well. Well, so, you're not wrong, but at I the am, same time, yeah. at the same time, <laughs> the story is clearly told with the apartment block's inhabitants as a collective. Uh -huh. Sure. And by telling the stories of what's gone on with the other with women, you can see how in their own head they are sure. and burdened by I their problems. Look, I understand that we can take Yatobe's finger trauma and apply that to Miss Ueda and her and her child. And it is a tragic moment when we find out that, you know, Miss Tojo always suspected that she had the $300,000 ransom money yeah. hidden in her locked drawer. Um, which is set up when Kimura actually goes to investigate the room. She finds a locked drawer, but she figures, I'm not going to try and bust it open now. I don't have the time. Um, and in the locked drawer is not the the ransom note, but instead a, a marriage certificate, I believe it is. Yeah. And it's because, you know, that guy who got slammed by a truck at the beginning of the novel is going to marry her, and it's all very tragic and awful. I think the most fascinating thing about this is if you were to approach writing your own story or if you're approaching other stories that explicitly try to push the boundaries of how mm -hmm. mystery works and what mystery does, this story is a great example of a, a very wiggly fine line yeah. on yeah. where to go with that because it's, it does so many things well to establish how the mystery works and it does so many things well to pay off certain parts of the mystery, but it also falters in different places. It's, it, it's just imperfect with no one key flaw. Yeah. And that's one of the most interesting things on a technical level about the mystery regarding reading this that made me love it so much as sure. a big technical geek when it comes to mystery stories. No, I, I agree with that. It's it's very much trying to strike a balance between pushing boundaries and be, between, you know, satisfying the rules. Like, I mean, as we talked about, you know, in the first week, like this follows Noxian rules and I think it follows all the Van Dyne rules. Yep. There are too many of those. That's <laughs> uh, it's why you're the Van Dyne guy. I'll be the Nox guy. Um, but yeah, like it follows all the rules very carefully um, and nothing like doesn't make sense. The story all ties itself up very well. Um, it just has, you know, a few niggling little, 
little aspects that didn't quite mm. pin it as a masterpiece for me. I think it's it's very close. I think ultimately Masako Tagawa is the kind of author that has got me excited about reading more of her work. And of anything that I would say about any creative endeavor, that is the defining quality of a great work, is if mm. you make me excited about checking more of what you or your contemporaries have done, and that's what this book succeeds at above all else. Absolutely. Now, Flex. Yes. We've come to the crux of it. We've come to the end. Now, I have a question for you, Flex, before I reveal the next novel we're going to be covering. Are you a big fan of magic tricks? You know. Maybe. Because apparently, according to the novel we're going to be covering, uh, murder mystery fans often do enjoy magic tricks. Apparently, that's a correlation that has been observed uh, by the characters in this book. The Dekagon House Murders oh. by Yukito Ayatsuji. Uh, this is a very famous uh, serial murder uh, murder mystery story from Japan. Yes. And it is a is a classic. We'll be covering up to the end of the third day on the mainland. Well, Herds, as we said a couple of weeks ago with Sean Britton on the show, we will be having Sean himself in to solve Agatha Christie's And Then There Were None. Yes. Uh, I the- should warn you, the Decagon House Murders is set on an island. Uh-huh. Uh, and it may or may not reference And Then There Were None. So, yeah, uh, we're, we're leaning in real hard on this one. And I hope you thoroughly enjoy Yep. Probably solving this one up to the tiniest detail. Well, I mean, that's that's the murder <laughs> mystery world tour. We've gone from Japan's most famous serial murder mystery incident mm. through Japan's most bizarre mm. serial mystery mm-hmm. and uh, now into <laughs> Japan's other most famous serial murder yeah. mystery incident before we get to the most famous serial murder mystery incident. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's a serial... Kind of yeah, that's how I'm feeling. That's how I'm feeling so it far. It is a bit. It is a bit. Yeah, I'm sure we'll have some some projects that will shake things up as we get through the year. But for now, serial murders. That's where the kids are at. Absolutely, and we are the kids. Thank you for joining us here on Death of the Reader this week. We will be back next week with Yukito Ayatsuji's The Decagon House Murders. Thank you so much for joining us here on your Murder Mystery World Tour. This is Two SER 107.3. 